Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Werewolf. Werewolf? Yeah. What? Werewolf. Bear Castle. Why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. Welcome to Wake Up Heavy, my weird dad's weird podcast about weird movies. Hello and welcome to Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. This is Mark Begley, your host. And today we have a new installment in the Wake Up Heavy line of podcast episodes. This is the first of our special guest episodes. The guest brings the movie. It is one of their recollections of horror, a movie that they saw when they were younger that made an impression that I may have seen, may not have seen, or any other number of possibilities. And today I will be talking with one of my older friends, Ronald Zurigian. This is my movie buddy. This is the guy that I have referenced in a number of episodes who, after traveling around a few different spots during the 2000s, landed back in Fresno. We started hanging out. We started watching movies, morphed into pretty much watching horror movies, and that's where this all began. So I tasked him with picking a film. He did so. We have both watched it. I have watched a number of the sequels, and we'll be diving into that movie. Now, we also share some past experiences with the Season 2, Episode 2 movie for Wake Up Heavy, Suspiria, which we will also be talking about together. It kind of made sense to kill two birds with one stone, and so he will be on that episode as well. Two quick notes about recording. This is, uh, both of these episodes will be done through Skype. And so it'll be a little clunky in parts and there'll be some dropout and some weird stuff that happens through that application. I'm not bothered by that when I hear it on other podcasts. The other thing is we just got a new modem. And I noticed the other day when I was working in this spare room where I do my recording that it has a hideous whirring hum from the motor. It's the kind of noise that if you were locked in a room with it for more than four or five hours, it might send you into a homicidal rage. So I'm hoping that I'm far enough away to where it won't creep into the background of the recording, but I can't make any promises. 
Okay, enough from me. Let's get into this since it is not my show today. It is all about Ronnie and his pick. Let's find out what it is. So today we are here with Ronald Zurigian, somebody that I have known for, what, 25 years now? You picked the movie for this episode, and what was the movie that you picked? The Howling. The Howling stars D. Wallace Stone as Karen White, a news reporter who is traumatized after being attacked by obsessed fan Eddie Quist. She seeks help at the colony run by Dr. George Wagner to restore her repressed memories. Karen suffers from horrible nightmares. She hears constant howling at the colony and fears that it may be overrun by werewolves. The Howling also stars Christopher Stone as R. William Bill Neal, Belinda Belaski as Terry Fisher, Dennis Dugan as Chris Halloran, Robert Picardo as Eddie Quist, Elizabeth Brooks as Marcia Quist, and Patrick McNee as Dr. Wagner. The script was co-written by John Sayles, and the score is by Pino Donaggio. What do you see? The Howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. Just try. He's right there. What do you see? What's there? What do you see here? What's there? Somewhere in these woods, in this primal, sensuous, secret place, lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm gonna show you something. Make you believe. When did you first see it, and what impact did it have on you? Well, similar to many of your experiences that you describe on your podcast, I saw it in um, the movie store. Every movie rental place that I went to had that beautiful cassette, and often it was the claws cutting through the flesh with the screaming face behind there. And it scared me, and... I, I knew that I shouldn't watch it, so I never, I never talked to, I never tried to get my my family to rent it for me. But then, when I was in middle school, um, my stepfather at the time had wired cable into everybody's bedrooms, so I had unhealthy access to <laughs> every boy's to, dream to <laughs> to everything that I could want to watch and and I shouldn't have watched. I think that if I remember this correctly, I was cruising channels and happened upon the transformation scene. The, the big one with, with Eddie Quist, where he says, uh, I want to give you a piece of my mind. And uh, it, it, it scared the shit out of me. 
And I, I was already like, by then I was already really, un, I was really into horror films. I hadn't seen American Werewolf in London yet, uh, but I was well-versed in Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and stuff like that was, but I had never seen anything uh, as like sweaty and gross and gritty as that transformation scene. So it, it was, uh, the key word is sweaty. There's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so much gross sweat. Um, but yeah, that, that really freaked me out. And so then I, um, I waited for it to play again. I don't know if it was like the movie channel or something. I don't know. And finally I played again. I watched the whole thing and, and it was, uh, the set design, the, the monsters, the, conspiracy of the self-help group like everything was just everything just clicked with me it was i was living in the mountains mm-hmm. um and i could i could imagine and see this happening so it, like it affected me on multiple levels well i saw it at i think it was mid 80s i was I can't really nail it down because it didn't leave that big an impression on me but i it was at a you know, high school party, we did these, you know, people would have either Halloween parties. It wasn't a sleepover because it was um, uh, boys and girls, it, you know, birthday, I don't know, Halloween, whatever it yeah. was on. This, this is what you did. You rented horror movies and hung out and drank punch and pined over some girl that you were never going to uh, date. And it played and I was doing something else. I don't know. They had a game room and I was playing pool or something. But other stuff was going on, so I wasn't paying real close attention. The only thing that stuck in my head was the uh, campfire scene, the that animation. And at that time, to me, uh, comparing to a lot of the other horror movies that I watched, looked really cheesy. And that was my first impression, and I kind of let that first impression keep mm-hmm. me from watching it, I think, until I honestly don't think I ever rented this on my own or saw it. At any other point until a couple of years ago, I, you know, I didn't catch any of the subtle references in the movie. I didn't really catch the full story yeah. that first time. And through the years would see a lot of different Joe Dante movies and uh, some of them hit, some of them missed. And so kind of knowing that he was the director of that, it, it that wasn't a real big pull to go check it out either until you know, you get so into these movies that you figure, okay, I need to fill in some holes. I need to go back and reassess. And uh, glad I did because, you know, even with watching it yesterday for this show, realized just how good it is. And I've always been an American werewolf in London guy, but this might become the number one werewolf movie from 1981 for me. Because of that story, because of all those things you just mentioned, I mean, this movie moves at such a fast click. It's like I was watching it yesterday and I, I check the times every once in a while, either for cues for the show or whatever, and was surprised at how much time passed each time I looked. I mean, it go it it moves. The pacing is great. There's something going on. You have the investigation side of it. You have the, you know, the colony part of it. 
you've got different characters doing different things wherein an American werewolf in London, it's basically just, I can't even remember the, the main character's name, but it's really just his <laughs> story. And there isn't a lot of side action. They get a little bit of investigation with the doctor, but yeah, I really appreciate it a lot more now. And I'm, I'm kind of glad we're doing it for the show. Yeah. It's, it's, um, in watching it again recently too, like it's realized that it's, gosh, it's just the perfect rainy day waste an hour and a half experience. I, every time I watch it, I never get up to go do something else. It's in, it's deeply involving every time. And plus, you know, and, and this is another thing too. I mean, American Werewolf is, is like this in some ways, but every time I watch The Howling, uh, the older I get, the, the more I appreciate all the references and the more I, I feel like I learn about, I don't know, about the horror movie industry and like little things just by watching that movie. And when it's I, more of an adult story than American Werewolf uh, uh, in London, too. You know, yeah. you've got grownups doing, you know, they all have jobs. They're doing grown-up things, which is unusual for, especially for horror at that time. Mm-hmm. It was all centered around high school and college age kids because that's who they wanted to go see the movie and so that as an adult kind of hits a little bit better now than it would have when i was 15 16 or 17 and then i you know i to kind of steer off track here just for a bit you mentioned the other day when we kind of had our pre-chat about that opening scene and how it was evocative of of the the sleazy porno stuff in Taxi Driver, and it, I, it that stuck with me throughout the rest of the day, and it was total coincidence. But you know, Eddie Quist is basically a stalker. He's a celebrity stalker. He mm-hmm. he is uh, obsessed with the D. Wallace character, Karen White. You know, makes her go down to the porno shop and all that. And at the time, obviously, there were celebrity stalkers, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, a national phenomenon. It wasn't something that most people thought about, except that, you know, prior to the movie opening by like maybe a few weeks is when John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Reagan because of Taxi Driver and because of Jodie Foster, who he was stalking. So it was just kind of a weird, you know, it's totally coincidence, but um, that really made me stop and think about that and how, how much... TV and her personality is important in the movie. Um, I don't know how many shots of TV screens there are. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, how many people mention to her that she's quote unquote famous. And mm-hmm. so that kind of enters into the subtext of that film, which I, you know, would never have picked up on uh, as a kid. Yeah, no, I didn't pick up on that at all until later on. And and then, of course, I, I I didn't even see a connection until uh, to Taxi Driver and the porno theaters and and also the connection to American Werewolf in London with that too. Um, but the the CD aspect of the city didn't really. I just you know as a kid I just assumed that that's what the city was like. Um, if you go downtown, and to me as a kid the only equivalent I had for that was occasionally driving through downtown fresno and you just you just accept that but you know the yeah absolutely um the creep factor is is heavy there and maybe the howling is commenting on what was happening on the stalker aspect and what's talked about and or what's what's displayed in in taxi driver 
and our fear of Times Square and all that stuff. Though I think that the Howling is that supposed to be Los Angeles? I yeah, think? it's in yeah. L.A. and filmed yeah. in L.A. And actually, on the <laughs> kind of a weird thing that popped into my head, they porno shop is on Western Avenue, and this is brought up. You know, they actually filmed on on that street. Mm-hmm. And over the uh, police intercom, when they're driving around trying to locate her, they say something about Western and DeLongpre Avenue, and that is prime Bukowski territory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he lived on DeLongpre and probably walked those streets. So He's probably in the porno shop. <laughs> yeah, probably. You mentioned the set decoration, and we've got to talk about Robert Burns. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of funny when you, again, as a kid, I wouldn't have known anything, him from uh, – any other set director, we didn't know what a set director did, but right. uh, his list of credits, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Tourist Trap, all, uh, Hills Have Eyes, they all have that same look, and it's uh, mostly in Eddie's room, but you've got, you've always got bones hanging from the ceiling with him, and yeah. must have carried that stuff around with him to every movie know. set, because it's in, I mean, it's in all of those, so... And apparently he has a little cameo in the porno shop. He's one of the one of the customers. So, is he the one that that's like embarrassed and leaves I, when I, he, he must her? be because I think he was yeah. an older looking fellow even at the time. Uh, didn't do a whole lot, but he he did some. He worked for on some pretty influential films there. That that's I didn't even know I hadn't it wasn't even close to getting around to seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre when I saw. Um, the howling but there's some that or that that organic pieces of bone and and animal pelts and yeah all that stuff that really resonated with me as a as a kid um and it's probably this is very i'm sure very unhealthy but like um or says way too much about me as a person but i would you know growing up in the mountains i would see stuff like that you mm-hmm. know coyotes caught in barbed wire fences and just left to rot and like and so in watching the howling i was and also not too long after that i would i was got involved with watching twin peaks so these things (laughs) this these the deep woods uh environments where you don't really know what's going on or people left to their own devices might be hanging carcasses in their living rooms like that seemed fairly acceptable to me yeah Um, which is which is awful but well, that lends you a whole, you know, I mean, just 20 to 30 miles away where I lived, uh, you know, wouldn't even have had that experience. So that's, I mean, that's a whole other level. And that's great. I mean, that this is why this is how movies resonate differently with everybody. I would not have had that experience at all. Yeah, I think that's why. And what I was trying to say earlier about the, you know, what what those movies are saying about the CD aspect of of an urban landscape. Like, I think that that also spoke to me, too. Um, like, this is what the city's like. Uh, this is what the city's really like. This is what's really mm-hmm. going on down there in the, in the downtown areas at night. You have Eddie Quist's and you have uh, Robert De Niro's, you know. Right, right. Um, and that stalking and um, the, the danger of... And the undercurrent of violence. And, the under, undercurrent know, of violence. and yeah. Which, yeah, is on both sides, but... You, right. The 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 other side is the one that you have to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. You know, when you brought this up, it, it's from 1981, the year of the werewolf. I went ahead and watched the 
the four 1981 werewolf movies and started thinking about what it was that that created this little mini yeah why were we obsessed why 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 did our culture become obsessed with this at that time and i don't know i it, you know it was 1981 so Reagan had just taken office. It wasn't it wasn't really a commentary on on what would transpire for the next eight years, obviously, because it hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at the seventies, and I I guess it's kind of what they talk about in the movie. I think the one character that she befriends at the colony mentions, so I've done. Before I hooked into Doc, I did it all. I did S T M. Scientology, iridology, primal screamers. I don't know. I figure another five years of real hard work and maybe I'll be a human being. You know, that was all going on during the 70s when everyone was trying to look within and find themselves. And the um, psychiatrist, Dr. Wagner, in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah. talk about repression and letting out the beast from within and and don't hide it and all that stuff and that's which is which is strange because that's exactly what he's trying to have them do at the yeah. colony is re, is repress that um, yeah i think that plays into like post-war uh post-vietnam dealing with trauma and pulling away from uh, or acknowledging the 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 evil within or what being forced into you know acknowledging what our, our capabilities of, of evil maybe that's that maybe that's also why in the 50s we did a lot you know there were movies about werewolves too post-war the fear of the evils that we can that we have inside yeah, that, we of us. In, that we inflict and we're the monsters and, yeah we're the monster as the decade went on there were more and more but prior i mean there were werewolf movies in the 70s and 60s as well but none of them really kind of hit like 1981 so yeah out of those out of those four movies uh howling american werewolf full moon high and uh wolfen i would have to say that uh, howling and american werewolf still kind of stand the test yeah. of time they they're they're i i still haven't seen full moon high yet but um is but wolfen is as you know is pretty tedious to get through i mean the howling and and american werewolf in london i feel are both acknowledging the history of horror films um and also conscientiously making changes to advance the genre they're so well thought out both of those the humor the the terror all the aspects that we needed to see to to keep us to keep audiences in tune to like the Wolfman from the fifties. Well, let's maybe. talk about some of those uh, references because that's the stuff that I totally missed when I was a kid, and the Howling is chock full of them. And we've had this discussion before about self-referential films, and it, it's hit and miss with me. A lot of people, you know, what comes to mind are are the Joe Dante films, the Tobey Hooper films, the Fred Decker and Shane Black films. And a lot of those films are not favorites of mine from childhood, but I know that they really resonate with a lot of people my age or younger. With this one, I think it's a little more sly and you have to be like a real werewolf fan to catch 90% of, of the references that Dante sprinkled in there. 
yes, obviously having Howl in there it gets a chuckle or <laughs> the wolf chili, but more to, you know, the names of all the characters are directors of horror films. Mm-hmm. And of course they're fiddled with a little bit. So you have Fred Francis instead of Freddie Francis mm-hmm. or uh, Terry Fisher instead of Terrence Fisher. But even then, I think if they had been straight, it's different than, than naming all of your characters, Carpenter, Romero, and Craven, or, or everybody's going, you know, their high school is, is yeah. Carpenter High. And that kind of <laughs> stuff really bothers me. So the kind of deeper dive in the howling, I can respect a bit more. Uh, it was kind of funny listening to the, the commentary, because I know that they pointed out the Thomas Wolfe novel in something I've read, you know, you when you read the read the trivia or read the Wikipedia page, it mentions that. And I'm like, I can't I can't spot that book in the yeah. movie. You know, in the commentary, Dante mentions that the character uh, Dennis Dugan plays is reading it in bed, but it's out of focus. So it's like a, re- a real deep reference because you can't even read the title of the book or the or the author's names. You're someone that likes that stuff more. So how does that work for you, especially in the howling? It's like the gift that keeps on giving. To me, I feel like the howling represents, I mean, Joe Dante represents this, I think, like the the, the movie nerds director, um, or at least horror movie nerds director. Like he, I, I love that uh, he can make these subtle nods. I think about this constantly as a, as a writer. Like I, if you're going to say something, that, if you're going to create meaning for your reader or have that resonate with them, with your viewer or with your reader, whatever it is you're making, you want to have something on the surface that draws them in, but then you also want to embed these little secret handshakes. And I think that that every time I, every, I mean, now at this point, I'm familiar with all that territory in The Howling, but for, for years, every time I'd return to it, I'd be like, oh my God, that's that scene from The Wolfman, or oh my God, that's that, you know, I've, I'd forgotten that there was that scene from the, you know, Three Little Pigs. Oh, and then, you know, discovering that, you know, an actor like Kevin McCarthy is in Joe Dante's segment in The Twilight Zone and um, Dick Miller, of course, and these tie in like Joe Dante tying his material in with other people's material and also tying his material in with other with his own material Mm -hmm. like that just is a that's a I don't know. I think that's a that's a beautiful journey that we get the option to take. We can just watch the howling and be scared or we can watch the howling and be informed yeah, that's that's so that's so cool. Is that what you were asking me? I don't know. I got off on a tangent. <laughs> that's OK. Well, I do that all the time. <laughs> well, and he uses he likes, you know, he's one of those guys that has a, a loyalty to people. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, like you mentioned, and uh, Belinda Belaski, who plays Terry. Yeah, she was in a number of his films. Uh, starting with Piranha, I think she may have been in Hollywood Boulevard too, but I haven't seen that one. I don't know if he worked with Dee Wallace after that or not. I don't um, know if he ever worked with her again or her uh, husband. You know, obviously Dick Miller was in yeah. everything he did. Probably used a lot of the same crew and stuff, and that comes from that those Roger Corman years. And yeah. of course, we have to talk about the Roger Corman cameo. And oh my gosh, like that. <laughs> I love that that that's something that see that's just an example. I would have never gotten that if I if I hadn't been if I hadn't and I I don't know maybe I 
maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think that the howling and gremlins are probably the reason why I became obsessed with 50s B-movies. Does that make sense? Like, oh, I, yeah. I, think, I think that that's probably why. And, and I don't know. And I, so to me, like, that's like, thank you, Joe Dante, for like giving me that little planting that seed, you know, and I can discover later on, oh my God, that's Roger Corman. And we discussed this previously, but Roger Corman and Forey Ackerman, I would yeah. have had no idea who those guys were. I didn't really realize who Roger Corman was until. The Silence of the Lambs came out because I got a little bit obsessed with that movie. And mm-hmm. I have, I think I still might have them. I have a ton of magazines that had articles about it. And they mentioned all the cameos and that. So Jonathan Demme, you know, another Corman uh, student, did the same kind of things that Dante did. And he's got Corman in there. He's got George Romero in there. And um, probably a, a few other people, you know, when they said, oh, he plays the FBI director. And I was like, oh. That's what he looks like. I mean, obviously, if you if you watch horror movies at all, you know who Roger Corman is, but you may not know who, what he looks like. Right. And so now watching it, you know, in the little uh, nod to Rosemary's Baby there with the phone booth. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And then they've got him, of course, fishing for coins out of the out of the phone. And and ha ha. I love that. Right. Because, he's you know, he's a he's the he's the ultimate penny pincher. I love that. So that's, you know, anybody else watching that movie that's not because tons of people have seen this film without having any interest in the history of horror films or the history of B movies or the history of movies in general and and not not get that. You know, it may be that someone's like, oh, that reminds me of another movie I watched or it may just pass them by completely. And it doesn't matter because it doesn't it it stops the movie a little bit, but not enough to be like, why, why was that in there? Because she's concerned at one point that it's him, you know, Eddie Quist. So that informs the story as well. And then we can move on. So it works in any way you look at it. So I wanted to bring up the sequels real quick just to go back to the difference between them, or at least the ones I watched and and the original. And so I watched uh, two, three and four and didn't have very much fun watching any of them. Three was interesting. Uh, two and four were pretty much slogs to get through. And I don't want to. This my point in doing the show is not to you know have a crap fest on on bad movies, but it just made me think of the difference. And you know they're all low budget movies. I think the budget for the original Howling was a million. The sequels I don't know, but it's very likely that it was less. Uh, even, you know, with inflation and as the years went on, I think part four came out in 1988. Um, I think that I, in watching the extras on the howling, uh, the producer is talking about how part four or part five, I can't remember which one is essentially mostly just clips from previous howling movies. So <laughs> as, that would have probably as been this, part five, because part as, four is original. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah no, that's, that's right. Part, part five. Yeah. That's but a nice yeah. trick that people pull. A lot of sequels do that. I know that Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 got a lot of crap for ha- reusing a lot of footage. That's never a good idea. So hopefully that trend has stopped. You know, the difference in those movies, I think, lies on the, the creative team behind it. You can cover a lot of your budget by being creative. And they were very creative in in The Howling. You know, I have just one shot in particular and i think this was on the audio commentary 
you know, they filmed in, in different locations throughout California. Multiple times mentioned, oh, well, she's running in Mendocino here, and uh, we cut to her running through Griffith Park. Yeah. And those are hundreds of miles apart. But the terrain looks close enough to me to where I wouldn't even notice it. But there's a shot where Dee Wallace is, they're in their cabin, and we have a shot of the outside through their window. And since they didn't have that terrain behind the window, the real window of that cabin, they made a fake window to get the mm. shot that they wanted. And to me, that's the difference. Like, well, how do we, how do we get around this obstacle? Very, you know, yeah. not a big obstacle. Well, fabricate a window and then you can shoot whatever you want through it. And yeah. to me, that's kind of the brilliant thing about a person like Joe Dante to tackle those, the hold that the budget has on you and you do it, you become creative. And I think that that's where the sequels miss the mark is that oh, they, yeah. they don't rise above their budget and they're fairly sloppy. You know, there's no way to know the intent of the people behind it, but it, it <laughs> doesn't seem like they care all that much. And it seemed like Joe Dante cared. So, yeah, well, that's, that's the reason why, uh, that's the reason why any low budget film will last. Uh, if, you know, if it has that care, that invested, um, I mean, and I think that that's, that's Joe Dante probably learning from Roger Corman. You know, a lot of those, a lot of those movies are just horrendous. However, there's a lot of, in those, those early films, they could be boring, but they're, they're, they're nice to look at. And if you're looking at, uh, you know, the evidence of, of not caring is, is apparent in The Howling 2, just because there's nothing happening until the end, I, I guess, um, but then same thing with the uh, fourth one. But the third one is like the not caring. Sometimes the not caring or the not rising above the low budget like works in, in, a, in a way that's both horrible and hilarious at the same time. And maybe that's why I like the third one, because it's not good. You know, if that's the cream of the crop, then I'm fine with being done watching uh, three <laughs> of the sequels. Because I didn't, you know, I have heard that that one is and I, and on the not quite hollywood documentary it looked yeah. really fascinating and it is the better of the three i watch but it's mm -hmm. still not that good of a movie oh it's it's just it but you know there's something to be said about it the weird the weirdness i mean the the disconnectedness of everything in that film the creepiness of the you know the found footage and the the, the creepiness of the pouch and the, the, the <laughs> how these 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 are where marsupials mm -hmm. um, and and the connection to the the extinct Tasmanian tiger yeah that was um, awesome and you know really it was when I saw that I, I think I saw that not too long after I first encountered the the first one another late night viewing it was right around the same time that I became uh, started to become obsessed with Australia and Australian movies and so I, I can even though the howling three is a is a horrible movie I can really thank it for opening up a whole world to me well and we got to talk about that one scene the weird breaking of the fourth wall and mentioning that they're being filmed <laughs> What to me, that kind of that summarizes now? the movie for me because it, it 
it really had no bearing on anything. I rewatched that scene to see if maybe in a, another shot the crew had shown up or something and they were trying to cover that. No, I don't think so. There's, and no, there's no reason. It was very strange and had no connection to anything else in in the film at all that I that I could remember and I may have kind of tuned out after a while so if it came back in later on when that character shows up again I don't I don't recall no there's but, like there's there's nothing it's there's no reason for that scene there's not even a reason for us to be introduced to that you know rich dude like there's no reason right, right. at all yeah yeah and that's what I mean like just kind of sloppy and watching part four, because that was supposedly them going back to do the the novel in a more, because so much has changed in the howling from the novel. And in part four, it's supposed to be closer to the novel, which I guess it is not having read the novel. I don't know, but just the descriptions that I've read. And it would be kind of interesting if you watched one and four back to back without realizing that and thinking, boy, this is I, you know, I've seen this before. This is mm-hmm. very similar mm-hmm. to the other one. Why did they do that? But I did have to note that, you know, on IMDb, it states that the opening scene was filmed at the Radisson Hotel in Fresno. I don't know if that's true. I've never been inside the Radisson. This would have been the Radisson from 1988. This is a nice place. Yeah. You know, it's a Radisson, so it's pretty good. <laughs> right. Which I don't think is the Radisson of today. Says it's across the street from Selendarina, which we all, you know, Fresnans all know. Mm-hmm. And it's just odd because the bulk of the movie was filmed in South Africa. And most of the exteriors, which there aren't a lot of, it's street shots of L.A. So why yeah. they would come... Why there's would they got, even do that? There's got to be tons of hotels in, in L.A. <laughs> that, that would have perfectly uh, been fine for that scene. But, uh, you know, if it's true, then we've got a little uh, hometown connection to the Howling Four. So that's my uh, one positive thing to say about the movie. Although there is a really great transformation scene at the end of the movie that is super gloopy and really gross and slimy and yeah. an interesting, uh, basically the guy just melts away and then reforms as a wolf. And I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's novel. That's an interesting way to do it. So I did like that. Yeah. That's and, a cool, that's a cool moment, but you have to wade through all the, right. it's the last 10 minutes of the yeah. film, you know, and part two, I don't really have a whole lot to say about other than Christopher Lee is in it. Ferdy Maine is in it. Um, we have the very bizarre in credit sequence with, with the, the post punk <laughs> scene and the, yeah. the post punk band. And then the, the repeated <laughs> reveal of Sybil Danning's boobs. <laughs> oh man. Somebody actually posted a GIF of that clip of her (laughs) on Twitter the other day. And I said, well, if you watch the last, if you watch this for a minute, you get the same idea as the end credits for The Howling 2. Yeah, except Uh, you don't get that entire, like, really great song. Yeah, just to watch the GIF. The song that plays, that's the only song that plays through the movie. They, re- I repeat it four or five times. That's another thing that kind of drives me bonkers with the, lo- well, we've got this song, so let's just throw it in there every chance we get. <laughs> and, oh, man. And then, it, which reminded me that it gets really confusing during the orgy scene 
they they're cross cutting with that band performing, yeah. and it makes it seem like, you know, it's the same location. Like the band and, is there. Right. And I'm going, okay, we know that the band is supposed to be in LA, quote unquote, and this is taking place in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Just just it's kind like, of mess. What year was that again? I don't know the year of the the uh, sequels. I didn't I didn't make note of any I, of that. You know, because MTV, you know, is is becoming popular probably, and um, probably they're they're just thinking this is going to be a great music video sequence for this band that's going to make it big and make us a lot of money, and and they put their cards in one basket and and it just failed. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, but you know, that civil, would require some forethought. So I don't know if I maybe if not. I <laughs> maybe not. I love that that both Sybil Danning and Christopher Lee are express their shame in being a part of that film. Yeah, well, right. And Lee was in Gremlins 2 and apparently apologized to Joe Dante for taking <laughs> part in the film. So I love that. Yeah, you should never apologize for for the work you've done. But yeah, I guess I can kind of understand it a little bit. Well, apparently Christopher Lee was a very polite and thoughtful man. <laughs> See another thing too is seeing Robert Picardo and 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 Dick Miller and and Christopher Lee in Gremlins Two. I mean, obviously, I knew Dick Miller was going to be in Gremlins Two, but but having these again, these are these little gifts that Joe Dante is giving us as viewers. Like, here you go. There's a history here. Yeah, and I had no idea that Robert Picardo was you know one of those Dante staples, and I really. I don't know. I think I'm more was more familiar with him as a TV actor. He was in Inner Space, which I watched a lot back then in the VHS yeah. days, and I think it was probably on HBO constantly. And yeah. remembering him from it, but really didn't make the connection. And I don't know if he's in The Burbs or not. I know oh. that Dick Miller is, and and some of the other uh, staple Joe Dante troupe. But, yeah, I didn't realize that there was such a connection between the two of them until kind of doing research for The Howling. And yeah. this was their first work together. And see, there you go. You know, that loyalty and that goes a long way. It's nice to see that. I don't know. I'm, you know, that's happening elsewhere in the industry. But it's just every time I revisit Joe Dante movies, I feel like like welcomed into a, a family of sorts, which is a, which is a cool thing. Yeah, and I think that's kind of reflects on the type of guy he is. Yeah. Well, it must. I don't know. He seems like a nice guy. Seems like a nice guy. So that's the other big part of this movie is the the transformation scene and Rob Bottin and boy, watching those extras, I'm pretty sure that he probably could have just let his chest hair and his neck hair grow together and played the final version of the of the werewolf in that movie. I'm pretty. I'm pretty oh confident that that's him. What? <laughs> I mean that that beard goes up to just about his eyeballs. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, it his starts, hair is amazing in that in that clip. Yeah, it there's there's like there's a little window. There's an area for nose and eyes, <laughs> and that's that's all you have. The rest is hair. Yeah, he's essentially a werewolf. I did I I I've not seen him in that state before. I've seen other images of him, but um, that's a, he is essentially like. No wonder he had a deep understanding of, yeah. uh, of the wolf. 
but it's it's interesting the connection between that and American Werewolf and you know where we get all the bladder effects and although I think it's used much more extensively in The Howling than American Werewolf you know the fact that Rick Baker left The Howling to go work on American Werewolf the budget difference between those two movies is I think about nine million dollars mm-hmm. and it's apparent I mean the yeah. the transformation scene in Howling is fun and gross and and gloopy and like you say when he comes back he's all sweaty and faces melted from the acid and they did a lot a lot with their budget i like how again how they covered up some of the mistakes of overinflation or inflating too fast by inserting wonderful sound effects crackly bones and oh man i mean in comparison to like if there, you know, if you watch like the Wolfman with Benicio del Toro, the transformation scenes in that, which is predominantly there's some practical effects, but it's predominantly computer animated. And you go back to the Howling and watch that. There's a visceral terror you get from watching this plastic stretch and pull and inflate, and you have the sound effects. The sound effects are really like what makes that all work. And also the speeding up of the mm-hmm. speeding up of the the shakiness of the body transforming, and there's like, um, and then you watch the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London, and it's so like clean and smooth, and yeah. smooth, and like, and so much more believable. But both of those movies are better than any accomplish a better transformation scene than anything I've seen since. Uh, I don't know if. If that's just me being, you know, a child of the late 70s, early 80s and loving practical effects. Well, it does make a difference. It makes a difference to your eye and thus to your brain that, okay, this is whether it's a real person or whether it's a, uh, you know, latex head or something. It's a real thing and it's being caught on film in real time and your brain recognizes that and I think appreciates it. And there's, a, <laughs> have you watched Wolf Cop? Not yet. Gosh, I've been wanting to okay, watch that. Okay, so it it came up on on the Joe Bob Briggs show on Shutter a couple weeks ago, and I'd seen it before, but I hadn't watched it since. And you know, really great low budget transformation, and I an idea I don't know that I've seen. I think I may have seen it in another movie where basically it's just the it busts out of the person's skin. And I think that's a really smart way to do it. Yeah. So you just wrap up, you know, either appliances or a person in fur and then tear away the skin. And yeah. It, and it's real and it's on, you know, it's on film and, or digital, whatever, which, mm-hmm. however they shot it. But it, it makes a big difference to have it be a real thing that you're looking at. Something you uh, feel like you could reach out and, and touch. Right. You know, and with a werewolf, this is, it's all about tactile quality it should be so any computer generated werewolf i mean i don't know if you ever saw those horrible van helsing and no, uh what's the van helsing and then the other one that kate beckinsale is in this underworld you, or something yeah underworld movies it's like you're you're looking at a cartoon right there's nothing about that that allows you to feel like you could reach into that film and, and touch that fur. There's nothing about that. And I, I think that that's probably, I mean, even the wolf, the original Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr., it's like, it's, it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, and even with optical effects, 
it's still a lot more interesting because you're seeing you're seeing makeup applied in steps, you know, yeah. and then fused together. The on camera stuff is always a little bit more fun for for eighties kids. Yeah, I mean yeah. CGI transformation is really kind of pointless. This is just you and I complaining about kids these days. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> make it look super realistic and I'm there for it. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, if it's smooth and cartoony, then forget about it. What's the point? Well, that's what, and I know we're not talking about it right now, but that's what I love about the new uh, Suspiria movie. Yes, and that's a good uh, segue. So I don't know if you had more on the howling you wanted to discuss. If we missed any major points that we should have gotten to. For people listening who haven't seen the marsupial, the pouch baby. <laughs> that pouch uh, baby we, is cute. Pouch baby is cute and terrifying too. Very eraser head at <laughs> moments. Like, and that's, well, you know, that's, that's, that's one, why it's worth it to watch yeah, that movie. There's one thing I got to point out about Howling 3 that they got right on the nose the movie that they're shooting that they um, get this oh, yeah. girl for is Shapeshifters Part 8. <laughs> and it just so happens that there have been eight Howling movies. So they were yeah. a little bit prescient on that. And I got to give them credit for um, peeking into the future to see how far that that franchise would go. That's like a George Lucas moment right there. It's like <laughs> he knew. He knew what this was going to be. And so did the producers of the Howling from the very beginning, right? Yeah. This is going to be an eight-movie series. Get <laughs> prog- progressively worse. So is there anything you want to point people to your Instagram? Or I'm going to link your book on here. And Thank you. Um, there's only three left on Amazon. Uh, oh. Ronnie has written a book of poetry that everybody needs to go out and buy called Rough Fire. And I'll link that on the show notes. And then if you want to plug your Instagram, feel free your uh, public Instagram. Yeah, that's Skelevader. S K E L E underscore V A D E R. Yes. So it's uh, it's just pictures of of my toys engaged in odd activities. Nothing sexual. Yeah. No, <laughs> Let's get that straight. It's not, it's not that Instagram. No, that's, it's not that, that kind of Instagram. But yeah, that's that's fun to look at. That's and you I- and you have eBay. Uh, auctions every so often. Hopefully, uh, Super Seven will make some howling reaction figures. <laughs> um, if anyone from that company is listening, that they, they should get on that. Uh, we need it. We need an Eddie Quist. It's probably a rights nightmare. <sighs> and we need a Slim Pickens. As well. Oh yeah, didn't talk about Slim or John Carradine. Or John Carradine. If I could be a, a person. If I could be a, a movie actor, I'd think I'd want to be Slim Pickens. I was thinking about this. Or Dick Miller. Like, they could just be in anything. Yeah. Um, and it, not not super committed. No, Never big roles. Just, like, beautiful, a beautiful presence when they're, when they're in there. You know, it was kind of interesting watching this yesterday. John Carradine, it was a little bit bittersweet because it seemed like it was sort of a commentary on his career. You know, I want to end it all. It's not, you know, talking about his teeth are being worn down. And I just thought, yeah, that was probably very true to your life at the time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I, I, um, and I know this is, this is a stretch, but it's because I, I teach this book to my, my undergraduate 
college English students. Um, but the, I keep thinking whenever I see the howling now, I think about when I see John Carradine's character, I think about this character in the human comedy, uh, Willie Grogan, who's the telegraph is really on its way out. And he's like sort of the last person doing this. And every monologue in the book is a, sort of like a sad take on on what is what is my life now and then he dies and i feel like watching john carradine i I get that same feeling it's like he's on his way out and what is what is he left behind so it's it's a little sad i don't know how long he lasted after that but it was probably for a good another five years or something so being a little bit premature on is that his last movie i don't know i'm gonna look it up right now he died in my 1988, see? So he, he lasted a good another seven years. Oh, he was in Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's a movie. That's the yeah. beginning of Nick Cage just going batshit crazy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right, Ronnie. Well, I will see you on the other side of this, and we will talk about Suspiria. Sounds good. Mark, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. And this is, you know, you were my first thought for a co-host before I promptly gave that up, realizing that it was going to be a nightmare to try to get anybody that had as much free time as I did to do this. So uh, (laughs) we're hitting that today with two episodes. We made it work. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was one thing that I wanted to bring up that Ronnie and I didn't get to in this discussion, and that was the score by Pino Donaggio. He did a lot of work with Brian De Palma over the years after Bernard Herrmann passed away. His first film score was for Don't Look Now, which I have brought up a number of times on the podcast. He did the score for Dante's Piranha, which is what led him to David Schmoller, or David Schmoller to him, I should say, to do the score for Tourist Trap. I never really noticed it, but when I bought the DVD, the uh, the music playing over the, the titles at the beginning, um, the main titles of the DVD itself, sounded super familiar. I realized, oh, this sounds a lot like the music from Tourist Trap. So I wanted to play a little comparison. First, we have some of the score from The Howling. And then this very short clip from the Tourist Trap score. Thank you very much for joining Ronnie and me on this first special guest episode. I think he did very well for his first time. I popped his podcast cherry. (laughs) Uh, And you will hear him again on the Suspiria episode, which should be up in about a week or so. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to wake up heavy. Uh, Here's some more of that score for you to play us out.